Hello, it's Mila. We are going to be back with a regularly scheduled episode of Future Hindsight next week. But today, we wanted to share with you a preview of another podcast we've been loving, and we think you're going to love it too. The show is called Some of My Best Friends Are. Hosts Harvard professor Khalil Gibran Mohammed and journalist Ben Austin are friends, one black and one white, who grew up together on the south side of Chicago. As adults, Khalil and Ben are still best friends, but they know that interracial friendships aren't going to solve the problems of a deeply divided country. So on their show, Khalil and Ben have real talks about the absurdities and intricacies of race in America. They invite guests like Attorney General Eric Holder, restorative justice leader Danielle Serrett, and TikTok historian Sherman Dilla Thomas to join critical conversations that are at once personal, political, and playful. The episode we're sharing with you features Donald Yakovone, author of Teaching White Supremacy. In the midst of new laws to ban books about race and the teaching of slavery, Yakovone digs through thousands of school textbooks and finds that most already emphasize whiteness as the core of our national identity. Let's have a listen. We're excited about this conversation and uh, want to hear more about how you came up with this idea, but also just talk about the importance of how people learn American history. Do they? I'm Khalil Gibran Muhammad. And I'm Ben Austin. We're two best friends. One black, one white. I'm a historian. And I'm a journalist. And this is Some of My Best Friends Are. Some of my best friends are... Dot, dot, dot. In this show, we wrestle with the challenges and the absurdities of a deeply divided and unequal country. And in this episode, we're going to unpack why we are so divided and unequal. We're going to learn what we've all been learning in textbooks for a very long time. We're talking about teaching white supremacy. This episode has some strong language. Just a fair warning, but stick around. Khalil, hmm. here we are, man. We are in the post-midterm America. We are past that election day. <laughs> yeah, man. We're supposed to be really happy about the fact that uh, this is the first time when things didn't go so well for the party out of power, right? You were away out of the country, but I was watching on, on TV that night. And, you know, it was essentially like Democrats were like high-fiving one another. They were celebrating this idea that this red wave hadn't happened, right? That there wasn't the second coming of Trump. Yeah, it became a red puddle. A red puddle. It was like expecting this disaster and things turned out just to be shitty. Right. And we were supposed to be happy about yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And and the truth is that, you know, whatever we want to say about the Democratic Party being the party of democracy now, they're going to lose power. Maybe less power than they thought, but they're going to lose power. They're going to lose power. That has yeah. real consequences for the, for our future and real consequences for women's reproductive rights, real consequences for how we as a country expect to pass on, you know, what it means to have real rights in this country to our children. It's sad, but to some degree, the bones of this country seem to be rattling in such a way that we aren't that much further along than some of the history we talk about on the show. 
you know, and we, we often talk about race. Maybe that's the only thing we talk about on the show, <laughs> you know. But of course it was, it permeated the entire election, yep. right? Yep. I mean, so there was this whole idea where, whether you know, this fear-mongering yep. about yep. crime, which was really fear-mongering about yep. race, and whether it was rejected or not, which really was much more interested in this idea of, of you know, using crime as a political tool, whether it, like, you know, the Democrats weren't even necessarily concerned with whether it was right or wrong yeah. to, to run away from those issues or to embrace them. Yeah. You know, in, in the Georgia race uh, with Stacey Abrams running for governor, 72% yep. of white women did not vote for her. That was an exit yep. poll. And that was after getting rid of Roe v. Wade. Yep. It's nuts. And I guess for me, I think that what we're going to talk about today with our guest gives us a chance to kind of go back to first principles and like figure out like, why do we keep repeating the past? Why do we keep falling prey to these moments of retrenchment? Well, that gets us into today's episode. Because we're about to dig into a history of textbooks in America mm. and how they really teach white supremacy, how they've perpetuated this idea for well over a century. Yeah. And if you're a listener right now thinking, OK, hold up, fellas, what does the midterms have to do with history textbooks? That's exactly the point. They are the building blocks of our society. They are the texts that we all encounter at some point in our lives that tell us what we owe each other as citizens of this nation. And so we get to talk to Donald Yacavone, a lifetime researcher at Harvard University's Hutchins Center for African and African-American Research. He's also the author and editor of 11 books. And the book that he just wrote is called Teaching White Supremacy, America's Democratic Ordeal, and the Forging of Our National Identity. So he, he wrote this book because he was researching abolition, something that he, he teaches about and has been studying for years. And he went into this library at Harvard to look at a couple textbooks that, that were taught in classes in America, and there were like thousands of them. <laughs> and he started digging into them. And what he ended up with was a book which is about the history of teaching white supremacy throughout American history. It's a really smart idea because essentially it's a study of American identity, how it was formed, what it means, how it was perpetuated one century to the next. And again, I think this is a really fascinating concept, meaning to what degree do we owe our current politics to what we've all been taught in our history textbooks. Yeah, and I felt like I was seeing this on TV last week and seeing it on this, all over the country. Like what we saw in this book about how these ideas are continued to today, they still define our politics and they're gonna define them going forward. Absolutely. Yeah, man, so let's talk to Donald Yacobo. Let's learn what he learned to help us all be better. Welcome, Donald Yacovone, to Some of My Best Friends Are. It's so great to have you on. And so you went and read over 200 American history textbooks published yeah. and taught in American schools from basically the early 1800s to the 1980s. Correct. And, you know, maybe in a just like, what was your big takeaway? Like, what is, how do you sum up like what all that research led to? Uh, shock. <laughs> how so? Yeah, explain. So I thought... Why don't I start near the beginning? And I picked the year 1832 because that was a year after the emergence of the radical anti-slavery movement uh, and William Lloyd Garrison. In fact, throughout the pre-Civil War period, there was never any discussion of the anti-slavery movement, no acknowledgement that it even existed. So I went and I went through the 1830s the 1840s. And I thought, wait a minute, what am I seeing here? 
there is an extraordinary emphasis upon whiteness. I mean, it's not hidden. It's not assumed. It's overt. And so collective we in all of these textbooks is always a white collective we. Absolutely. Yeah. American identity is white identity. Exactly. Yeah. Unless they specifically refer to red savages, mm. which is the usual way they refer to native inhabitants in North America. Khalil and I were in public schools in Chicago in the 1980s. Yeah. We're reading history textbooks. Yeah. And Khalil, like, we, we didn't go to the same middle school. We went to the same high school. And I definitely remember Frederick Douglass, and I remember studying slavery. And I also remember, you know, this sort of pervading idea that, you know, post-civil rights when we were in school, like, all the bad shit happened back then, mm. you know, in the unenlightened past. You know, we were not part of that because we were sort of on the other end of this. Yeah. I actually thought about this in light of a conversation I had with, with Mark Morial, who is the current president of the National Urban League. I was okay. talking to him a couple months ago about actually this very topic about the problem of how do you teach American history in light of the backlash to talking about it at all. And he kind of laughed and he said, you know, that's funny. You remind me of when I was in high school in New Orleans, where he, uh, where he came of age. And he said, one day they were talking about the Civil War and the topic came up and it was defined as the war of Northern aggression. <laughs> and he said he was the only person in the classroom to raise his hand and say, wait a minute, that is not what the Civil War was. <laughs> he felt alone. And, you know, I mean, I could also remember when Roots aired on television and that being sort of much more powerful and sort of talking about the enslaved experience and sort of creating dialogue, creating conversation throughout my family, at school, like in classrooms even. Yeah. I mean, that, that felt like way more momentous than what was happening in a textbook. Yeah, yeah. The kind of attention that Roots gave to the African-American experience in slavery and after had never been done. Yeah. Nothing approaching it had ever been done. You know, I have two historians in front of me right now. And I want to ask a question about textbooks in general as like a medium for history, even as a subject for studying history. One of our producers, Lucy, heard that we were going to talk about history textbooks. And she was like, oh, no, they're so boring. She has sort of this like fl flashback <laughs> to her own high school experience. And I think about textbooks that are in classrooms and there's both sort of this ideological factor of them, what's going on in the world. There's also a commercial element to it, right? Like oh, you sure. have publishers who are mostly in the North who are like, we want to sell as yep. many of these as possible. And so there's, there's that demand. And we also have 50 states and each state, each basically like school district can sort of set its own curriculum. So there are thousands of school districts. And then we, we hear things like even about Texas, you know, when they set their curriculum each year, there's such a big market for the textbooks that what they decide in their curriculum is going to shape what is actually like written in a textbook that's published in New York City. This is today. I'm saying all that to ask, like, what does it mean to study textbooks? I mean, for both of you, like you're historians, what do you get out of a, a history textbook that's taught to children in American classrooms? Well, I think for younger students, it is a convenience. It is a way to encapsulate the record in a manageable size. Mm. I think once you get to college, a textbook isn't necessarily uh, demanded. I taught at college. I didn't always use a textbook in the introductory class. It's not essential. However, textbooks as a genre are designed not just to present 
the, the record of the past, but they inevitably encapsulate the way Americans think about themselves, their values, their aspirations, their meaning, their identity. That was a preview of Some of My Best Friends Are from Pushkin Industries. Hear more from Some of My Best Friends Are wherever you get your podcasts. Next week on Future Hindsight, as we approach the second anniversary of the January 6th insurrection, we'll be speaking with activist, advocate, and author Steve Phillips about his new book, How to Win the Civil War. You won't want to miss it. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.